Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of Reading Sinclair Getting to Know. Um, I'm Rohan Shah and today I'm joined by my colleague Louisa Wetton um, and we'll be getting to know Melissa Ayres. Uh, Melissa has 20 years of experience leading marketing and communications for scale-ups and corporates on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, she's worked in both agency and client-side roles um, and has managed marketing strategy programs and teams at the global, national and regional levels. Um, her speciality is working with high-growth technology companies, especially in the B2B SaaS space. Recently, um, Melissa completed a volunteer program with Social Starters, a business support incubator that pairs professionals with social enterprises. Uh, Melissa is currently working with Maggi, a fintech startup tackling pension poverty. Previously, Melissa led uh, global marketing for OpenSignal, um, a mobile analytics SaaS scale-up. Melissa, welcome. Wonderful to have you with us. Thank you, Rowan. Thank you for having me. And hello, Louisa. Hi, good to have you on board. Um, Melissa, how have you been? How have your last few months been with everything that's going on? It has been a wild few months, hasn't it? But I have to say it's been uh, really good uh, with the, the world as it is, with COVID taking over. It was really fantastic to be part of a volunteer program and helping uh, a company that really needed some help in this time. Uh, so, you know, putting my skills to work for something good in an otherwise crazy world felt really fantastic. Excellent, fantastic. We will certainly come on to that um, a little later in our discussion. Um, I want to start by just getting to know you a bit, a, a bit more and, and, and we'll go back to, um, to what got you into marketing. So, so what is it that got you into marketing in the first place? Well, of course it was all the fame and fortune, right? Why else does anyone get into marketing, <laughs> Rohan? Um, <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I was always a word person. So um, I suppose it was really the writing part that initially got me hooked. I was really fortunate that my first boss was an excellent coach and mentor, and he taught me all the uh, foundations of marketing communications and the art of business writing. And up until that point, it had really just been theory, the things that I had done in university. Um, he used to say to me, our role as communicators is to be the bridge between what the company wants to say and the audience needs to hear, whether that audience is investors or press or employees. Uh, so finding just the right words, just the right strategies, delivery channels, all that, um, that offers so many endless challenges and possibilities. And it, it's, um, it's addictive, frankly. And all of that stuff continues to fascinate me and motivate me even to this day. Fantastic. And so how, how has this played into your, your career so far today? Has, has, it been, has the industry been fulfilling the reasons why you got into it, the purpose ultimately? Uh, well, I have to say I still love all the challenges that hold find the right message and map it to your audience sort of thing. And how do you get them to take the action that you want them to take? So that hasn't gone away. All the mechanics behind it, the writing and having the, you know, the right strategies, the crisp messaging, nothing's changed. What has changed is the delivery mechanisms. Uh, marketing today is so much more real time. Uh, with digital media, you know, everything is practically instantaneous. All these channels, you can iterate, you can refine, you can do things in very rapid succession. And uh, we have real time analytics um, to measure it. So I, it's an amazing amount of change actually in just a few decades. It's pretty um, incredible, but all that change is really what's kept me passionate about marketing in the whole industry. Um, you know, 
fundamentally that the tools change, the channels have changed, but it's still about, you know, the right message for the right audience. Yeah, absolutely. And no doubt those, those changes over time have, whilst they've obviously been great changes, no doubt, they've no doubt caused challenges along the way. And how have you managed to deal with some of those challenges that, that you feel have, that the changes have caused? Well, I mean, the biggest change is certainly the whole real-time communications and that, you know, I have to say, I'm going to date myself here, but when I started, you know, real-time real communication was the, the daily newspaper. If you wanted, or maybe the, the local broadcast channel, we actually used to, I'm, I'm definitely dating myself, we used to mail press releases to the press, right, or fax them if you wanted it. And now communication is absolutely instantaneous with, uh, you know, you can get messages out immediately and if you don't get your message out someone's going to get it out for you so the the, the adaption pro the adaptation process has really been uh being aware of those tools learning the new tools as they came on mm -hmm. adopting the new tools and in my case always making sure i was hiring people who were uh young enough in their career that the new tools were not um they were not new to them they were the only tools they only knew so learning uh learning from them so the the, the process has been much the same of iterate and learn as you go and make sure you're up on the latest tools to deliver it. Yeah. Right. And just um, for, for some of the people um, looking to get into marketing at the moment, what, what do you think was your biggest challenge, you know, finding a role within the industry when you first started out? Uh, were there any challenges? I mean, it's always getting that first break, isn't it? Uh, it's finding that, that first company that's going to give you uh, the opportunity. And then um, I actually graduated from UD at a, at a very competitive time, not quite as competitive potentially as it is today. But uh, there was a lot of graduates looking for jobs and I certainly, um, you know, it wasn't an easy task. I was very lucky that I went to a university where you had to do um, work experience. So having that um, was really important. And then um, being extraordinarily diligent about getting CVs out. Um, again, this was before the age of digital when you could connect with people on LinkedIn in a, in a snap. Mm -hmm. This was, this was uh, sending out CVs to companies, phoning them, uh, a completely different world. But that diligence is actually what made the connection. And I'll be honest, my very first job came from a blind CV that I sent to a company that was, it was a company I was really interested in working in. It was a big corporate. And uh, I sent that CV and I didn't hear anything. And a few months later, they phoned me and said, we have been keeping your CV on file and we'd love you to come interview. And it just worked out. So you just never know. It's really disheartening when you send things out and you don't hear back, but, uh, but you just might, you never know. Yeah, it's really interesting you said that actually, because I had a very similar experience, I guess, from my background within PR and the fact that so many people I worked with throughout my career just kind of, you know, admittedly fell into PR and comms and it was never something that they set out to, to work within. And I think I was quite surprised that I was in the minority that had actually studied a PR degree. I think, you know, sort of eight, nine years ago or so when I was at uni, it was very new for them to even be doing sort of communications as a degree. Um, and similar to you, was lucky enough to have a sort of placement year and really that kind of hands-on experience was invaluable in my in my future career so it's really good those kind of courses that give you that opportunity to break into the workplace as well yeah and i would tell you grad don't underestimate all some of those classes any mm. good business writing classes you take will come in handy the ability the ability to communicate is more important than ever the ability to know 
know, good spelling, good grammar really is um, important. And, and if you've done anything uh, in a, on a global front, and we talked earlier about what's changed, the world's gone global now. And so anything that, you, that folks can do to get more of that um, international experience, and it's easier, you know, it, it's easier just because the world's, the world's on your computer to do that. Uh, don't underestimate volunteer experiences as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just, I guess, leading on from what sort of got you into marketing in the first place and, you know, your, your passion still being fulfilled, which is obviously really, really nice to hear. Um, moving into how we met, um, we met when you were working as a VP of marketing at OpenSignal. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about your role there and what it was like working for and a scale-up business? So firstly, about the role. So uh, OpenSignal, they, they hired me to scale their very operational one-person PR function into a strategic marketing team. So uh, I would describe them as a really ambitious scale-up looking to drive global brand leadership. So from the, those humble beginnings, mm -hmm. I built out a five-person team doing PR, of course, and then content marketing, product marketing, sales enablement, brand management, uh, brand licensing. Uh, so one, one highlight is the, the team scaled the content marketing program from 25 countries to 40 countries all across uh, EMEA, LATAM, APAC, the Americas. Wow. And, and it drove, the PR program alone drove 30 million global brand impressions. Um, I'm really, really proud of the fact that the, the team helped establish um, Open Signals reports as the industry authority. Mm -hmm. they, they really, the team was brilliant. They accomplished a lot. And I actually have to say hats off to you and a shout out, Louisa, because you helped me hire one of my all-star team members. Well, thank you very much. Team. Yeah, I was glad to be a part of yeah. your, uh, your success there. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, you also asked me about working for a scale-up. So, gosh, how do you describe that if, for folks who haven't done it? Um, maybe, it? Maybe a good way to think about it is like riding a roller coaster. Mm. You know, you get that first get to know you, what to expect briefing, you lower your safety bar, and before you know it, you're banking around your first curve and things just go gangbusters from there. You get the twists and the turns and the climbs and the head rushing drops and, I don't know, you stop unexpectedly in the middle of this loop-de-loop -loop and you think, hmm, what's happening? How did I get here? And uh, before you know it, the, the ride is over and you either say, oh yeah, never doing that again, or that was so much fun, I can't wait to do it again. And uh, I definitely want to do it again. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. good to hear. So marketing and, uh, and communications is the industry uh, for thrill seekers. <laughs> yes. Just um, on that, uh, Melissa, working for a scale-up, no doubt I can imagine how fast, you know, fast-paced it must have been, but also scale-ups are very, very uh, driven by numbers. And um, one of the things that I think certainly the PR industry struggles to do is show an evaluation or a measurement around the return on investment. And how how did that play into your role? How were you able to do that for a business that was growing so quickly where no doubt there was pressure for you to deliver tangible ROI? Yeah. So I, the role at OpenSignal was unique in that unlike I think any other company in my career, PR drove the marketing function. The number one lead generation tool they had was those reports I mentioned. So um, it was very easy to see the connection between those reports going out and the amount of sales conversations that happened as a result of it, and also feedback directly from the sales team. Um, it's why 
we ended we you know we scaled more it just worked really well also we didn't have a big marketing budget so we didn't have the budget to be doing uh, very expensive digital marketing programs uh, and equally we had a very specific target audience we were looking at you know, the telecoms industry so uh, you, you go where your audience is and all of that played together and then the other marketing programs that we did had very much more traditional ROI type things uh, that you would expect you know running brand licensing there was there were revenue numbers on that and how that worked so there wasn't anything unusual there but but it is it is always a challenge in the in the PR world of can't always make that direct connection between uh, the work that's done and the sales that come in. And uh, it, it is forever a challenge. I feel very lucky that I was in a, a place where it was frankly very, it was obvious when it was working and obvious when it wasn't. Yeah, I imagine um, working in the marketing, kind of heading up the marketing team and for Open Signal as well, one of the benefits that you had is that you were very kind of forward thinking in sort of delivering research and you always had quite groundbreaking statistics that you could go out to the media with and that must have helped hugely from a, a relationship point of view and from a, a marketing and PR point of view to you know have interesting and useful statistics to to take to the market and to take to journalists to create stories. Yeah you bring up an excellent point Louis so we had data so what so OpenSignal is a mobile analytics company they um they collect data from uh, smartphone users around the world who opt in, you know, it's all opt-in sort of um, communications. Uh, but because we, those billions and billions and billions of data points come in, we, there's a technical team uh, and data science team within the company that analyzes all of those uh, and then is able to turn them into uh, actionable insights that, we, that the company released to the market. So it was really brilliant. Uh, it was uh, very fortunate from a marketing and PR standpoint that we had that, that incredible trove of data to, uh, to work with. And yes, you're absolutely right. The global press especially loved it uh, to the point of OpenSignal generally put out a report in each country about twice a year. And the, the journalists in many markets got so used to it, they would start phoning us and saying, isn't it time for the you know, the Argentina report to come out? We're waiting for it. So, yeah. uh, so that was always... Uh, Really, very good. And I can say, you know, you hear a lot about opt-in and opt-out and uh, journalists not wanting to hear your news. In the whole time I led that, I can't recall one journal, you know, one, maybe there were a handful because they were completely, they'd moved beats, for example. But we just didn't get those people saying, I don't want to get your reports. They didn't always write about them, but they knew that they were valuable and they'd often keep them you know, on hand in case they were doing a story later. But it, it was really a, a very unique uh, situation and uh, just a, a testament to what really good content can do and then a good promotional team an excellent PR team doing that and we had a an in-house team of uh, two to three depending on the time and during my tenure but we also worked with about 10 agencies around the globe wow well, so. mm -hmm. yeah no I think that's fantastic as any PR professionals dream to have that proactive interest from the press so yeah, yeah it must have been brilliant for your team to benefit from that um, so I guess just kind of touching on, you mentioned earlier how collaborative the team worked together and that the success was really down to your joint efforts. So having built a communications team within a high growth business, what do you tend to look for in your team and the people that you surround yourself with? And, you know, are there any common traits among employees that are well suited to these kind of high growth environments? Yeah, self-starters, definitely. Uh, curious, collaborative really important because you can't do everything on accountable 
So especially in a startup, a small team, you're taking on a lot of responsibilities. And so if, if you're responsible for something, you really do need to get it done. And understanding that everything doesn't always go smoothly all the time. Sometimes things get off track, but being accountable for that of, of when something gets off track and how to get it on track. I think all of those are important. Uh, you know, personally, I, I have a, an approach to team building that I call aces in their places. And that means put people in the roles that, that play to their strengths because nobody's good at everything and nor should they be. But if you put people in a role where they can shine and help them grow and build the team around them, then there is no weakest link in that. And uh, what you get is a really strong team and people uh, just doing the best work possible. Yeah, it's really refreshing to hear. I think that's a really nice kind of way to think about it is almost shaping the role around someone's, you know, their strengths and their characteristics rather than expecting them to, you know, tick boxes and to fit into a, a sort of strict um, job spec. It's really, really nice to hear. Yes, it, it served me. It has served me really well. I think hire good people. Skills can be learned. Um, good work ethic, smart thinking, reliability, accountability. It's hard to teach those things. Um, but I, you know, I'll, I'll take a person like that in a day uh, who maybe doesn't have all the, the, the hard skills that's needed because I can send them to training. Melissa, I'm interested to know, um, for, you know, for, for any other scale-ups that are listening, um, in, in terms of growing a marketing team, where should one start? I think we've seen a number of, a number of businesses, companies, CEOs come to us and say, you know, I'm growing my marketing function. I want to start by hiring maybe a junior and I'll, I'll give them some of the strategy of which they should be doing. And obviously the CEO marketing is not their forte necessarily. Um, and some come in and say, actually, I want to start with, with a director and, and put the strategy. Where, what would you say is the right approach if, if there is one? Okay, so firstly, I think it's about what they need marketing to do for them. Some, some companies uh, absolutely need the marketing function to do lead gen right away. And others need brand building. Uh, and uh, some need a hybrid of that. So I think it's first and foremost identifying what your marketing pain point is because as a early stage company, you're, just not, you're probably not gonna be able to do it all. In terms of where to hire, uh, you know, that's a tough one because it really depends on the company. In general, it's hard to hire a very junior person who doesn't have a lot of experience and expect them to be able to grow something. So if, for example, you know that you need a digital marketing program and you have the mechanics in place, uh, perhaps you, there is someone who has developed a strategy that might work, but, but you, won't be, you won't be getting that strategic eye over the long term. Uh, so I, you know, if, if I were in a position to advise a CEO, I probably would say the better bet is to go more senior to start and help that person build a team, but work with that person to understand what does the team look like? Because a challenge sometimes can be a senior leader doesn't want to roll their sleeves up and get the job done. Now there are leaders like that. There's, so it's about finding that person who is willing to say, I'm going to map out what this organization needs. I'm going to understand the goals. And then, and then this is how we're going to build it. But the reality is we never get, we may never get beyond three people because that's what the budget is, but here's what we can do. So yeah, I think that's, that's where I would go now, but I definitely wouldn't discount junior people. I just think it's unfair to put them in a role where uh, you expect them to do more than they could potentially know. 
and it's also long term, not necessarily good for their career because they don't have a mentor to learn from who can help teach them. Mm-hmm. So that that always has a challenge. And I've I've talked to a number of young uh, young people, even in the last few years, who say, you know, I got this great job out of uni, but I'm lost because now all I know I I know how to do digital marketing, but now they've asked me to do PR, for example, and I don't know how to do it, and there's no one there to teach me, and suddenly you know, I'm being held accountable for all these things that I don't know and, and I'm kind of lost. So we have to remember if we do bring in a junior person, then perfectly fine, but then be ready to give them training or mentorship that they will need to succeed. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And I think obviously there's, um, there's external support that you, that you can call upon. And I think you mentioned earlier that OpenSignal, you, you know, globally you were using 10 external agencies. Um, just for, for agencies that, that are going to be listening to this, like, what would you typically look for when choosing your agency? Would it come down solely to how they deliver against the brief or would it come down to other factors that aren't necessarily taken into account when delivering on that brief? A uh, really interesting question. Uh, for us at Open Signal, it was we did have a very specific brief. Uh, I had the benefit of having worked at an agency before, and a member of my team had worked at an agency before, so we understood kind of the mechanics of how typical agency relationships work. So at at the get go, for us, it was making sure we were really clear on what we were looking to do and to find a partner who was like minded. Uh, we, for example, in our case, we really needed local market knowledge and we needed someone to be our um, liaison with the local press, so a, a press bureau. It was not the kind of place we didn't need the strategy and things because we had that internally. So, uh, so that made it easy for us to identify what we needed. And we found quickly that some agencies were up for that and others were not. Uh, in our case, we because we had existing relationships in the PR world, we tended to tap those relationships first and that just, you know, relationships do matter. And if you've worked with a client, even if they move on, they're, they're going to phone you and phone you up first. And that's exactly what, what we did. And uh, we had cases where uh, agencies worked out and uh, as far as I know, they're still working with open signal today and are brilliant, but we had others where it didn't quite work out and we needed to, to part ways. So we were, we were uh, open-minded enough to say, if something wasn't working, have a conversation, but we didn't believe, belabor it. If it, you know, it just didn't work, then you know, we agreed that it was time to move on. And no hard feelings, it just wasn't the right relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so you've kind of touched on, you know, your background working in agencies um, previously to Open Signal. So I'm really interested to hear a little bit more around if there is anything you've kind of learned between about the relationship between marketing and PR agencies and in-house teams. Um, what are some of your kind of key learnings there? Yeah, uh, at the very heart of it, it's about trust. If you have trust between the two sides, then I think absolutely anything is possible. Uh, Agencies, it's important, they build trust by understanding what matters to the client. And what I found there is what they, what they think matters or that they think should matters is not always what the client thinks. So uh, you've got, got to challenge yourself as someone on the agency side. And I say that even as myself, who was on the agency side at one point, uh, to really be a good active listener to understand 
what matters to them. Uh, and then ultimately by understanding that, delivering absolutely exceptional work without question. Uh, and then when, when there are problems, addressing them openly. I mean, not every relationship is smooth. There are bumps in the road, but, uh, but addressing those in an open, honest communication with an open and honest communication style is super important. That's about building trust. Uh, on the client side, trust is, is about opening your inner circle to your uh, to the agency. So one of the common mistakes I see is that a, a client side person won't give all the information or keep some of the information back or doesn't think information is relevant. So the, the agency team is developing a strategy on not all the full information. And obviously a strategy is only going to be as good as the information that's put into it. And it's just my data science background tells me Bad data in, you get bad data out. So if you don't have full information into your brief or telling them something, you inevitably aren't going to get good strategy. So uh, there is a tendency sometimes for clients to keep agencies at arm's length, and that makes for a really tough time on the agency side. I, I say that having been on the agency side where that was a challenge. So um, likewise, though, it's, it's incumbent upon the agency to really set themselves up as a partner versus a vendor. If you go in as that trusted partner and with the idea to building that relationship, that's so key because what you don't want to do is be seen as the vendor because also vendors are the first ones to get cut when budgets get cut because the purchasing team comes in and then, they, and then the client thinks they don't really need you. But a, a partner of, you know, Louise is always there when I need her. Those are the, the, the folks that, um, that are going to stick around because they have skin in the game. And that's what a client essentially wants to know from the agency. They have skin in the game. You know, I got to say, I'm sure I was a nightmare client because I, I worked on the agency side. And, and when I went to client side, I always expected my agency partners to work with me the way that I worked with my clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I can only imagine what, <laughs> how it was working with me. But, but I also think that, uh, you know, looking in hindsight, I've built great partnerships with most of those agencies and uh, and I would work with them again, for sure. Yeah. And, I, and I still have clients from, you know, 15 years ago phoning me to say, you know, can you help me with this or do you know someone who can do that? So those relationships really do last. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, you know, you hear a lot of PR agencies saying, you know, we see ourselves as an extension to the in-house PR team. And it really obviously is about that, that you need to become an invaluable partner, not just sort of um, a supplier or a vendor, like you mentioned. Um, in case times get tough, you need that kind of trusted relationship and um, to continue working together and supporting each other. Um, so just, I guess, um, what you've been up to since OpenSignal, um, and yeah, where do you kind of see your career heading next, if you're happy to talk mm -hmm. through that? Yeah, so as, uh, as Rohan said in my, in my intro, I recently completed a, a volunteer program with Social Starters. Uh, they are London-based, they're a business uh, support incubator, and they essentially pair professionals, not just marketers, but all kinds of professionals, with social enterprises uh, to help them uh, grow and scale at whatever stage they are in their business. And most of them are quite early stage uh, or certainly not in an exponential growth at, at this point. So at, that's when I was paired with uh, Maji, which is a FinTech startup. And uh, so they're all about eradicating or solving the global pension crisis. And you know, the, 
fascinating or, or alarming, I should say. More than 50 million people in the UK aren't saving enough in their pensions. And so that, that creates problems down the line. Uh, so anyway, Maji's out to do that. It's really interesting working with them. Uh, anyway, after, after that program, Maji invited me to stay on and work with them as a consultant. So they've been keeping me busy these days. Uh, in terms of what's next, so uh, joining Social Starters uh, came from a desire, a professional desire to use my experience to pursue purpose as well as profit. So I made that decision to, to make a shift uh, and to do the Social Starters program before COVID hit and then COVID hit. And it, it made everything even more come to light about how much we needed uh, how much I personally felt I needed to do more about helping and, and making the world a better place. So it's made me, COVID has really solidified my desire, um, and my passion for working with a purpose-led business. So I, I definitely plan to continue to work with what I'm calling, a, or what the industry calls tech for good companies or purpose-led companies. And I can certainly see myself doing more uh, volunteer opportunities uh, and not just in the, uh, High tech sector, but I'm, uh, for example, I'm currently exploring a trustee opportunity with a UK charity. Um, yeah, thanks for that, um, Melissa. So you talked um, about purpose-led organisations, um, and I'm interested in your view that there's a number of organisations now that talk about their purpose that goes beyond just corporate purpose, but but doing uh, some form of good. You know, whether that's social good, good for the planet, etc. Um, do you feel that all organise all organisations now should have that form of purpose for, for, for doing good or do you feel companies still have that space to uh, to simply make profit and and serve a purpose for their customers mm -hmm. it's, it's a really interesting question and uh, I guess my utopian view of the world is that every company should have a purpose uh, but but ultimately I think it's the market that will decide uh, companies or research is showing now consumers are more interested in working with uh, purpose-led companies and organizations that are giving back or at least not doing harm in the world and uh, ultimately I think that will be that will be what spurs more of companies to adopt a purpose-led approach because the consumer will speak with his or her wallet and say I'm going to support these companies because they're making a difference and I'm not going to support these other companies uh, and the consumer market generally you know, often leads in trends and and uh, so I, I expect that the B2B market won't really be um, far behind in terms of uh, people thinking well all given the choice uh, and given the fact that these uh, products and services are equal I'd rather work with a company that has a purpose um, of course if the you know, if purpose-led companies don't have superior products and great service, just being a purpose-led company isn't going to get them the market share that they want. Mm -hmm. So tell us a bit more about uh, Magi, um, the, the fintech tackling uh, pension poverty. Um, what's their, you know, what, what, what position are they in? What stage of their business growth are they? Um, and how, how is their marketing function fundamentally set up? Mm -hmm. So, as I say, very early stage, the V1 of the product just launched in June, and uh, it's a financial well-being platform. So, uh, in addition to managing all the administrative uh, tasks that come with pension management, which if you are someone in an organization responsible for that, signing people up and 
opting them in and out. Uh, there's, there's some administration involved and Modri essentially automates a lot of that. Um, they all, there's also ways that they can help uh, save, help companies save money on how they uh, administer their pension. So cost savings being you know, hugely important in this market, especially as a startup, every few hundred pounds makes a difference. Uh, on the other side, they so that, that's kind of the employer portal, um, and then they have an employee platform as well that helps me, for example, as an employee, see um, all of my pension savings, and I can see all of my pension pots from every single employer that I've worked at in one place, and I can understand better my uh, the pension that my company gives me. So there's research that shows that seven in ten employees don't even know any, don't understand their pension don't know what it does, don't know anything about it, and that they're really interested in having their employers help them learn more about it. So this, uh, the Maji's Financial Wellbeing Platform, together with the uh, uh, employer portal together, is a, is a really powerful platform. So right now, the company, uh, Maji's selling direct to employers. So the way, the way to, be, uh, to get users, if you want right now, uh, you have to be in a company that has Maji, but if you do get signed up and you leave that job, you take Maji with you, which is really fantastic. Eventually, the company will go direct to consumer, uh, but uh, makes more sense from a scalability perspective to start with companies and partners, which is what we're doing. Uh, and in what capacity are you advising them at the moment? Is it um, across all areas of their business or is it specifically focused around their, their marketing function? Yeah, I'm primarily doing uh, marketing within the context of go to market. So uh, marketing for lead gen, for uh, backing the sales pipeline, uh, that sort of thing. So it's, it's um, definitely, when they introduce me, they say I'm leading their marketing. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's a, one way to, to put it. But, uh, but we are a you know, small team. Everybody chips in and does everything. So the most important thing right now is um, sales, obviously, bringing new customers on board and then as we bring them on board making sure that the employer has a fantastic experience with their part and then any of their employer employer sorry, employee users have a fantastic experience so you know if we don't get that right at the get-go then there, there's that won't that won't bode well for Baji moving forward so focusing on that with uh, the amount of team that we have takes up a lot of time and we're all always jumping in you know and helping where, where things are needed yeah Absolutely. You, um, you talked about being introduced as the, you know, the leader of the marketing team and throughout your career, you've led large teams and obviously smaller teams. I'm interested to know what leadership means to you. What, what does good leadership look like to you? Um, certainly from the teams that you've worked with or from, from the leaders that you've been led by. Yeah. Uh, I think the best leaders lead from the front. So that the people who aren't afraid to roll up their sleeves, get things done, lead by example, uh, I try to emulate that. I learned that early in my career from my mentors, and uh, I think it builds a lot of trust in the team, and it, it earns you respect. And when you've got respect among your team members, they're, they're certainly uh, more willing to follow you, right? If, especially when, when there's headwinds uh, that come along the way. Um, and speaking of them, ap approaching those headwinds with uh, a positive attitude and a healthy dose of grit. <laughs> It's probably a U.S. expression, but um, just you know, being the being the force of positive when things are. The team will always look to the leader for how to react to something. I've worked in a lot of organizations going through rapid changes. 
whether it's pivoting to a new business model, opening new markets, you know, redundancies, all of those things. And those types of change create uncertainty and the team will always look to the leader for how they should uh, respond. So that, that positivity and the, the, you know, let's dig in our heels and get this done and we're all in this together goes a long way. Uh, likewise, in those times of change, especially explaining the why, if you tell people the why, they're more likely to come along with you. If you just tell them, if you don't explain the why and just say, do as I say, you, <laughs> you're not generally going to get um, really good results, uh, which, which goes hands in hand with the, you know, not, not a new concept, but the idea of listening more and talking less. Yeah. Right? yeah. So if we're doing a lot of, a good leader listens um, and takes everything on board. Uh, and then, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, of teams and you know, it's all about the team. So I, I think when it, when it comes to your team or when I look at my team, I aim to be a safety net for them, not shackles. I want to be there um, to help coach them, but I don't want to hold them back. And leaders who tend to put a lot of parameters and you know, sometimes uh, the euphemism for that is a micromanager. Uh, it, it really, it stifles the, the ability of the team to really flourish. Yeah. I'm just interested to know as well, Melissa, do you think that leadership is something that can be taught? Do you think that, you know, there is a place for kind of formal management training and, you know, a bit of formality around becoming a good leader? Or do you think that it's something that's maybe learnt via experience and, and observation? I think it's a, a bit of both. I think anybody can be ta taught good principles of leadership. There's loads of really fantastic leadership courses out there. But putting them into practice and, and being authentic about it, that's where it comes in that you learn it from someone else, I think. So certainly I've taken leadership courses uh, in my career uh, and it's been great to learn fundamentals, you know, things like active listening and techniques for you know, the role playing that you do when you have to give difficult feedback. All of that is really useful things. Uh, but putting that into practice and watching a good leader do it has been really what made the pieces come together for me. So I, I think it's both. Um, and, and I do think some people, some people are more naturally out front leaders than others. Sometimes leadership is equated with the, the, the loudest person in the room or, you know, the most charismatic person in the room and leadership can be very, can be very quiet. I've had team members who were quite introverted and yet, they were leaders. Uh, they weren't the one who was going to give up and go out and give a public speech or go speak to the, go give a CEO presentation because they would be terrified. But they were the people who uh, the rest of the team went to for, uh, you know, when they were having a problem or they needed to know how to navigate, uh, you know, a conversation with the engineering team or that sort of thing. So I think leadership comes in all shapes and sizes and it's incumbent on, uh, us as leaders, leaders who are doing large teams in organization to recognize that and encourage it and make space for all different types of leadership. Yeah, I think, I think, that's, um, I think that's fascinating. And, it, and, and, and you're absolutely right. I think it can comes in all, all leadership comes in all, all shapes and sizes. I think certainly from when I think about a lot of the leaders that I've spoken to, I find that, and even, even had, had the, 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 um, uh, have been led by, I, I think, Sometimes for me, the best leaders aren't the one that try and give 
the answers or know all the answers are the ones who are able to ask the right questions. And I think that really enables your team around you to come up with, with the right answers. And more often than not, they, they know the answers. Um, it's just that they don't know the right question. And I think that's, that's a fascinating thing, which is why I think extroverts could actually generally sit back, assess a situation, not get too caught up in, in, in finding the answer, but asking the right question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so talking about leadership and, and what good leadership looked like, what, um, I mean, I'm keen to know who inspires you. Gosh, so many people. Uh, but I, just because it's top of mind with the news this week, Michelle Obama is my current hero, heroine. I don't know if we're using the masculine feminine of those these days. She's such an articulate speaker and just someone who gets that whole art of messaging and speaking to her audience. I think. Uh, and she's an everyday person. You know, she didn't. Not, she she happened to partner with someone who was in the public eye, but she didn't necessarily sign up for that. And yet, the whole Obama brand. She's. I would argue she's half of it because of what she does. Uh, so I think, and I think she's an inspiration not just to women and people of color, but to to anyone uh, because her message speaks to. It's a it's a global message and it's a universal message. Um, she's just always spot on. So I think she's brilliant. Excellent. And um, anyone that would look at your um, your LinkedIn profile or certainly your CV would would very likely agree that you've had a very impressive career today. I'd, I'd certainly say you've been successful in what you've done. Um, I'm interested to know um, what do you attribute that success to? What, what do you put that down to? Mm, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's lovely. Uh, honestly, it's the people. I, I have been so fortunate to work with just fantastic people at every stage of my career and uh, you know whether it was a great boss or great colleagues or just a really good team it's just it's been it's made the journey much better and and I'm better for surrounding myself and being around people who have diverse viewpoints diverse skill sets you know I've always learned something from the people I work with it's kept me from you know getting stale and getting stuck in my ways uh, which is easy to do as you, you, know, you do the same thing over and over. You get a tendency to just want to do that. Uh, you know, one of the agencies I worked for early in my career had a saying, something like, uh, delight, delight your client by performing one miracle a day. And uh, I, I really believe that my ability to, to perform those, those marketing miracles only came because I was working with just amazing people. That's so nice to hear. <laughs> Very. Yeah, that's lovely to hear. And it does, it falls in line with, you know, uh, you know that saying, just surround yourself by, with, with great people, positive people that, um, that, have, uh, that, that are following that, the, the, the same purpose. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. And finally, just, to, just um, before we close, close up the, the conversation, um, just some advice for, for, for anyone or everyone listening. What, what, um, if you had to summarise what you've learned from your career so far, in in three words a motto or a quote either your own quote or a well-known one um what would it be yeah keeping on the theme of people i i i would say hire people smarter hire people smarter than you that's not three words though so hire smart people (laughs) (laughs) but yeah definitely hire people smarter than you are Uh, the people you you can't do it alone people make all the difference Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Melissa. Really enjoyed 
really enjoyed this conversation getting to know you better and and, and your career and um yeah just generally what good marketing functions looks like within within scale up businesses so absolutely fascinating thank you so much and um we'll obviously no doubt speak soon great it's been a pleasure thank you louisa thank you brian thank you so much really enjoyed that thank you so much for your time